1773, the surveyor and mapmaker John William Gerard de Brom wrote a letter to his patrons in England. Quote, Plants now in East Florida, preferable to any in Europe, he wrote, are Chinese orange, Seville orange, citrons, lemons. It is, he continued, a country adapted for sugar canes and, of course, for all West Indian products. What makes East Florida more conspicuous is that all Spanish riches brought from the Kingdom of Mexico, New Spain, Peru, Chile, and America, and from the Manilas in the East Indies, are gathered in one fleet at the Havanas on Cuba Island, which fleet sails for the Cape of East Florida and from thence takes its departure for Europe. The seas of East Florida are the most frequented and its shores the most known for shipwrecks. Inhabitants in that part are therefore highly necessary to give assistance and comfort to so many distressed, who in return will dispose to them their saved cargoes at low rates. End quote. Welcome to the story of Miami. Episode 7, Cape Florida. Near the end of his letter, de Brom gives us some detailed insight into things and people one might encounter near Cape Florida. Quote, You will perhaps meet at your arrival with persons who will endeavor to prepossess your minds with many prejudices in regard to climate, soil, insects, wild beasts, tempests, Indians, French and Indian wars. Believe me, that the persons you will meet with in any part of America never have been on the spot. But the persons you will meet on the spot have reasons which does induce them to look with a jealous eye upon you who will cut them off from many profits, notwithstanding the benefit they themselves will enjoy from your settlement. I have shown you how to fix barriers between yourselves and the insects. As to wild beasts, bears, panthers, basilisks, and crocodiles, they are never known to have hurt a person unless when they, being attacked, was obliged to defend themselves. They all will fly at the sight of a human species, except basilisks, rattlesnakes. They cannot fly. But when a person comes near them, they will give warning with rattling their tails, which is equal to the noise of the mounting of a watch. And crocodiles will indeed attack a person, but not otherwise than in the water. As to Tempest, you will certainly see more of them in that place than in any other you have been. The winds between north and east have great powers and cause turbulations of disagreeable effects, whereby your minds at first will be affected, until you become acquainted and familiar to it, when your apprehensions will be much less to what they can be in hurricanes on shore. As to Indians, you will find them in your first setting out rather friendly and useful. If any in their way of hunting should come near you, they will endeavor to gain your acquaintance and friendship by supplying you with venison, of which they will make practice, provided you present them with a little corn, rice, or salt. They will readily traffic with you and exchange skins, furs, bear's oil, wax, and honey. The Indians will not break out into war, nor be jealous about your settlement, nor even complain of it out of a political pretense, provided the governor is required to send invitations to the headmen of the Seminoles. These headmen may easily be informed and satisfied that His Majesty has thought it necessary a settlement should be made at Cape Florida by his subjects to give assistance and relief to so many distressed 
which yearly suffer shipwrecks on or near that place. End quote. It is often forgotten that what is now Miami was once British territory, where a swarthy Cornish accent might well have been encountered. When the French and Indian War ended and Spain ceded Florida to the victorious British, nearly the entire Spanish population evacuated to Cuba, taking with them most of the remaining indigenous population, including, as we know, the last of the Tequesta. England proceeded to divide her prize into two new colonies. The Panhandle became West Florida, with its capital at Pensacola, while East Florida, with its capital at St. Augustine, encompassed the entire peninsula. But with the Spanish and native peoples gone, much of East Florida was, for a time, almost completely devoid of people, emptier than it had been for thousands of years. John William Gerard de Brom was quite possibly the most prolific surveyor and mapmaker in the southern colonies at the time. And the British, eager to start developing their 14th and 15th colonies, therefore dispatched de Brom to survey the coast of the new territory in detail. A renowned naturalist, de Brom spent the next six years making meticulous measurements of Florida's coasts and interior, producing the most detailed records of the Florida landscape and environment that had ever been made up to that point. The amorphous blob of the peninsula, whose shape had taken on so many comically warped variations in maps up to this point, was suddenly replaced with the first accurate depiction of Florida's true outline. And de Brom also discovered that, despite its reputation, there were quite a lot of things that could be grown there, if one was willing to do the work. The Brahms records provide a wealth of fascinating information about South Florida in the last half of the 1700s. He noted, for instance, the abandoned remains of the Tequesta village, standing eerily silent on the north banks of the Miami River, and the sparse population of Creek Indians who were at this time already beginning to be known by a new name, the Seminoles. He also noted the loose community of Englishmen from the Bahamas, whom he dubbed the New Providence Men, and who frequented the shores of Miami to fish and capitalize on the salvage of the dependable supply of shipwrecks. We've mentioned wrecking a handful of times already, and as a money-making proposition, it is really quite simple. A ship wrecks, and you help save the valuable cargo it was carrying. And whatever you can save, you either get to keep, sell off at your discretion, or you're paid a percentage of its value to return it to the ship's captain. And with dozens upon dozens of ships laden with priceless goods constantly getting into trouble up and down the Florida Keys, this new population of Bahamians began to trickle into the desolate area, making a cottage industry out of wrecking, and relating to de Brom tall tales of the great pirates of their grandfather's days. In his service to the crown, de Brom also took it upon himself to anglify the names he bestowed upon Miami's features. And Spanish maps at that time labeled the Miami River Rio Ratones. Yes, River of Rats. But de Brom renamed it the Garbrand River. Biscayne Bay, he likewise renamed to Sandwich Gulf, after John Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich. And yes, this is the Earl of Sandwich whose name is now immortalized in the ubiquitous food format. In a parallel universe, 
perhaps the great city of Garbrand glitters on the shores of Sandwich Gulf. In our universe, the bay would eventually get its original name back, though the good Earl's legacy does live on. Now, the general region of Miami had, for a long time, been known almost exclusively for the singular landmark used by thousands upon thousands of sailors who relied on it for navigation, Cape Florida. At the southern end of Key Biscayne, the sandy barrier islands begin and the coral rock islands of the Florida Keys could be left behind. This location is the modern home of Bill Baggs State Park and the Cape Florida Lighthouse, lovingly known as El Farito by many locals. And before Miami became a landmark in its own right, the whole region was commonly identified simply as Cape Florida. The Brahms saw more than just a navigational marker at Cape Florida. Here, he saw a hidden opportunity for economic prosperity. At a time when the British Empire was expanding aggressively, the Brahm helped ensure that the wealthy men of England became aware of the chance to grow citrus and to make a pretty penny in the trade of salvaged cargo from the many wrecks. And eager to capitalize on its new colony, England got busy handing out land. In 1766, one Samuel Touche received a 20,000-acre land grant that stretched along the coast from the Miami, I mean, Garbrand River, south to where the Deering Estate is today. That's 31 square miles of pristine wilderness. On the north bank of the river, John Ernst received another 20,000 acres. But it was Lord Dartmouth who received the largest grant measuring some 40,000 acres, 62 square miles, across today's Cutler Bay, Perrine, and Kendall communities. On this land, motivated by his correspondence with the Brahm, Lord Dartmouth saw visions of a grand democratic community of God-fearing Protestants from all over Europe, organized as one great big force of good under the name the Cape Florida Society. De Brom himself was a stakeholder in the Cape Florida Society. Indeed, it is Lord Dartmouth and the other partners in the venture whom de Brom was writing to in our opening passage. He tells his readers not to listen to whatever terrible things people were saying about Florida. They don't know what they're talking about. Sure, there are bears, panthers, crocodiles, rattlesnakes, but they won't actually bother you unless you go swimming or confuse the sound of a rattlesnake for your watch. And sure, there are powerful storms that crash ashore, like, all the time, but once you experience one or two, you'll realize they're just a bunch of harmless noise. De Brom was, in many ways, Miami's first hype man, the proto-promoter, if you will, a sort of granddaddy of what has today become one of Miami's most hallowed traditions. He made great strides in improving the world's knowledge of South Florida and preparing his Cape Florida Society patrons for the settlement of its sandy banks. And yet, economic opportunities elsewhere continued to draw attention away from Biscayne Bay. The plans for the Cape Florida Society progressed at a snail's pace. And by the time the American War for Independence erupted in the northern colonies, not one of the men who had received land at Cape Florida had yet laid eyes on their property. No settlers were ever sent. And though it is likely they would have been eventually, the shifting currents of power in the Americas 
once again took a turn that would delay Miami's emergence into the spotlight for several more decades. Florida had been a British colony for a mere 10 years when the wig-wearing old men in the British Parliament passed the Tea Act, a ham-fisted attempt to save the struggling British East India Company by forcing the American colonies to purchase their tea exclusively, a purchase that came with a hefty tax. Indignant Bostonians responded with the Boston Tea Party. Parliament retaliated with four even more draconian laws that soon became known as the Intolerable Acts. And by 1775, the first shots were being fired at the battles of Lexington and Concord. The British colonies thus became rapidly engulfed in a bitter struggle that would take eight years to play out. Throughout the war, the sparsely populated East and West Florida colonies did not join their 13 sisters in protesting the Crown's hegemony. Far removed from any of the issues that had riled up the likes of Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, the Floridas remained quietly loyal to England. But as the dramatic twists and turns of the war played out, the 13 rebellious colonies became a more and more dangerous place for those who maintained allegiance to the crown. And suddenly, many of the very people who had first ridden into North America and proceeded to steamroll their way through native lands found themselves being ousted. And once more, Florida became an outlet for people fleeing an insurmountable wave. British loyalists from the north flocked to the safe haven of Florida in droves. More than 12,000 converged on St. Augustine, turning it into a boomtown. And still more moved to Florida when the British finally surrendered at Yorktown in 1781. The American Revolution left England reeling and threw its American colonial apparatus into disarray. For a brief moment, Florida remained a loyal colony but the vultures were circling. And while the British were still licking their wounds, Spain seized an opportunity, swooping in and capturing Nassau, thus snatching control of the Bahamas from the British and gaining a valuable bargaining chip. When the Treaty of Paris was signed in 1783, it officially ended the American Revolution and recognized the birth of the United States of America. In a minor footnote, however, it also mandated that the British give Florida back to Spain in exchange for the return of the Bahamas. And with the flick of a pen, the English loyalist population that swarmed into North Florida found themselves under Spanish rule, a prospect that most good Englishmen found absolutely intolerable. And with nowhere else to go, they migrated en masse once more, this time to the Bahamas where they descended on Nassau by the thousands. After only 20 years, the brief story of British Florida had now come to an end, and de Brom and Lord Dartmouth's dreams of a pious society on the shores of Sandwich Gulf were dashed like a ship on the reef, having never caught sight of Cape Florida. At the outset of what is known as the Second Spanish Period, Spain returned to St. Augustine to administer Florida. Their first move was stamping out those weird English names. Biscayne Bay's original name was reinstated. And a great PR decision was made not to revert the Garbrin River's name back to River of Rats. 
instead going with the more appealing Rio Agua Dulce, or Sweetwater River. The Spanish authorities began to parcel out new plots of land throughout Florida to anyone who would come and settle them. But their efforts slowly withered, and, as we have perhaps come to expect, they struggled to exert any form of real control over South Florida's development. The small population of Bahamian wreckers who de Brom had taken note of barely even noticed the change in authority. They continued to visit its shores, remaining a constant presence upon its otherwise deserted beaches and hammocks. They were joined by the adventurous souls among the displaced British loyalists, who were now crowded into Nassau, and many of whom had grown fond of Florida's unique landscape during their brief stay on its shores. Over time, more and more Bahamians who sailed to South Florida chose to remain as squatters, peacefully undisturbed by the Spanish authorities. And during the Second Spanish period, South Florida would come to be known as more a part of the Bahamas than anything else. Certainly, the Bahamians themselves felt at home there, and over time, a tight-knit community developed at Biscayne Bay. Indeed, the Spanish even appeared to have been somewhat accommodating. For example, it was one of these Bahamian settlers, a man by the name of John Egan, who was awarded 100 acres on the north bank of the river. This Egan tract, granted to him by the Spanish, has a special place in Miami's story. Egan's 100 acres is today the site of downtown Miami's central business district, the epicenter of the city representing billions of dollars worth of real estate. And John Egan's claim to this land is the first in the chain of legal title that the landowners of downtown Miami maintain to this day. The settlement at Cape Florida came to be known, quite fittingly, as the Cape Florida Settlement, not to be confused with Lord Dartmouth's failed Cape Florida Society. It represents a significant change for the Miami area, as it is the first stable and self-sustaining European community to form at Biscayne Bay after almost 300 years. Shipwrecks on the Unforgiving Reef were as dependable as clockwork, and Egan and the other South Florida salvagers ran a booming business coming to their aid. Although the area remained a far-flung afterthought to most of the outside world, the people living in South Florida were, perhaps for the first time since European arrival, doing well for themselves, and the number of settled families slowly grew. One account from this time describes 27 ships crammed into the little inlet known as Hurricane Harbor on Key Biscayne's west side. The people of the Cape Florida settlement were, by all accounts, friendly and unassuming. They had good relationships with the Seminoles in the surrounding areas, with whom they traded regularly and they even provided a welcoming refuge for runaway enslaved Americans. During the Second Spanish period, Florida became a symbol of freedom for enslaved black people in the United States. And despite the fledgling nation's protest, Spain did nothing to seal the Florida border, or to prevent runaways from escaping into the swampy wilderness, where Americans could not legally follow. Thousands of enslaved African Americans made their escape to Florida, and at one point, a population of several hundred is recorded at Key Biscayne, where the Cape Florida settlers could be counted on to help them make their final run to freedom in the Bahamas. 
But with the young United States right next door and eager to flex its muscles, this was a situation that would soon bring fresh trouble to Florida. Personally, we're big fans of the Cape Florida settlement days, a time that saw the beginnings of something in the DNA of Miami, a place that welcomes all comers. Here we see, for the first time, how the remoteness and isolation of South Florida, for so long the reason it was avoided, made it a safe haven for those who had been cast out by society. At the furthest end of Florida, far removed from the prejudices of the European superpowers who brought terror and despair to the non-white populations of the Americas, those who had had their homes taken from them found a new home here more than 200 years ago. <laughs> 